Hello again and welcome to Rasslin Memories Then and Now on KSRQ 90.1 FM. You can listen to Rasslin Memories Then and Now at our website, live and in the moment. That's at radionorthland.org. And if uh, you happen to miss it live, don't fret because we have the archives page set up with uh, well over seven seasons now of great Rasslin Memories interviews. Good archive to check out radionorthland.org. Glenn Baragat with uh, you once again, and also with us once again back in the co-host chair, a familiar voice uh, once you hear him. He's a pro wrestling historian and author. He's here with us uh, for this very special edition of Wrestling Memories. It's always extra special to have him on the program, the authority, Mr. George Shire. Welcome to the program, George. Oh, we've got a great guest, uh, a guest that I had a chance uh, last year to have on to the program uh, to talk about his book. And it was a very, very cool book uh, called Professional Wrestling in the Pacific Northwest, A History 1883 to the Present. And while he was on the program, he uh, was doing a little promoting, a, a little selling of, of what was to come and we were uh, waiting uh, ever since he was on the program with uh, anticipation uh, for this book uh, he was telling us about that he was working on uh, about the life of Gene Kaniski uh, it's called uh, Gene Kaniski Canadian Wrestling Legend and George uh, I'm going to welcome him to the program and we can kind of get engaged in some conversation about Mr. Gene Kaniski let's welcome uh, back to Wrestling Memories Stephen Verrier welcome back to the program sir well, thanks very much, Glenn. It's great to be back. Oh, absolutely. And the last time we were on, uh, got together, we had um, Mr. Mike McCurdy on the program. But this week, uh, I brought in George Shire, the authority, uh, the historian. And I figured, George, uh, you must have uh, checked out this book because this is right in your wheelhouse. Gene Kaniski, Canadian wrestling legend. Oh, you bet. And it's good to have you on the show there, Stephen. It's uh, going to be fun. I have your book. And... Uh, yeah, I remember Gene Kaniski, saw him so many times back in the way from the late 50s into the 60s, and I saw him in the 70s, and uh, he, he is main event. He was a main event all the way through. You know, I'm always interested when you come up with the idea to do a book, so I'm going to hit you with this first, uh, Stephen. Wh- what was it about Gene Kaniski over, I've got to believe, many, many wrestlers that you saw. What was it about Gene that you said, I got to do a book on this guy. This is the one I want to do. Yeah, well, he was somebody special in Canada. You know, I was raised in Ontario. I grew up watching Kaniski as a a wrestling character, loved him. I mean, he really struck a chord across Canada. Uh, But it was when I was doing research for the last book um, on the Northwest that I I came to realize just, you know, what more than a wrestler he was. he was absolutely great. You know, he, he was a true businessman, uh, just a great spokesman for the wrestling industry. And the more I got to know about him, uh, you know, even beyond the wrestling, that's what really set me in the direction of wanting to write his biography. That, that's great. And, you know, one thing you brought out about being a great businessman, and, and obviously the one thing that always intrigued me is there are certain wrestlers that were in that kayfabe era that other wrestlers would always talk highly of. You know, they always would say so-and-so was a top act. And I never heard anybody over the years that I talked with wrestlers and, and we'd talk wrestling say anything negative about Big Thunder Gene Kaniski. He was always well-respected. And I'm talking, this came from guys like Danny Hodge, 
Nick Bockwinkle, Wilbur Snyder, Dick the Bruiser, Vern Gagne, Pat O'Connor. These are names, just some of them, that when you when I remember talking to them in their conversations, and if the name Kaniski came up, man, they they could talk about Gene, and they said Gene was a, just a class act. He was a great guy. Vern Gagne, for one, had great things to say all the time about Gene. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, a lot of that came through when I talked to Greg Gagne. Um, and as you say, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, so many people yeah, overwhelmingly saw Kaniski as a great athlete, but a lot more than that. I mean, really, uh, just a great guy. And I, I can't even estimate how many people I talked to over the course of researching his biography, but, um, you know, easily 90-some percent were, were extremely positive, and especially wrestlers who had a few years on them, um, a lot of his peers, uh, people who grew up appreciating him from his early days in the 1950s and, and really had a sense of his career. It wasn't really until I started talking to people, you know, younger wrestlers, <clears throat> particularly who came through Vancouver, who felt maybe he was shorting them a little bit or just not giving them the opportunity to, uh, you know, to take their place on the big stage. Uh, so some of the younger wrestlers maybe had a different take on Gene Kaniski. Uh, but as far as his contemporaries, I mean, you, you talked about some fellow legends, wrestlers of, of that sort, definitely. I mean, I talked to San Martino and Koloff and Terry Funk and others, and they feel exactly the same way. Kaniski was a great guy, a great representative. It's just some of the younger ones who thought that maybe he was a little bit slow to step aside in favor of letting them have their turn, but... Again, 90-some percent of the people I spoke to easily were absolutely uh, uh, in favor, you know, very positive in their, their outlook on Gene Kaniski. Well, and you know, when you mentioned some of those younger wrestlers that may have had a uh, slightly lesser favoritism towards Gene, maybe thinking he was older for the business at the time or his ideas were uh, outdated, you know, not to say anything negative about those wrestlers that maybe said that, but I think it's normal for the younger generation sometimes to look at the old guard and say, you know, they're taking my spot or they're, they've been in the business too long or when are they going to step aside? And I think as wrestling progressed, as we got into the 80s and the 90s, that became even more uh, prevalent out there where that new guard was looking for the old guard to pass the torch. And some of the old folks, you know, they still, well, they could still go if they wanted to, and they could still put the butts in the seat. And so I understand it. But, yeah, his contemporaries, uh, the wrestlers that were of his era, of Gene's era, they, they really had good things to say about him. And, you know, when Gene would come into a territory, and, you know, I saw him in, in Indianapolis, and you see him in uh, many times in my home area of Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, I saw him in St. Louis uh, many times. These, these were uh, towns and territories that Gene was respected in by the wrestlers. And when he was on that card, generally it was a main event. And the fans, I know me, uh, looking at him, and of course, I was a kid, you know, 40, 30, 20, 10, you know, 50 years ago. I'm 106 now. But he was uh, he was always uh, 
an addition to the card that made the card so much better. Yeah, you know, I have a similar experience, not with Kaniski. I was, you know, raised in Ontario, and I, I never, well, actually, in Ontario, I saw Kaniski in person once at Maple Leaf Gardens when I was very young. Mm-hmm. But, you know, wrestlers, certain wrestlers of that era were, as you know, just larger than life. Um, and he certainly came across that way. He was somebody fans respected. Um, people were just, you know, in awe of uh, some of these fellows. And, and Kaniski was was one who was certainly thought to represent his industry very well. And in Canada, he really took that to another level. I mean, he was a bona fide celebrity across Canada. But just a, a figure that, that people really looked up to and respected, regardless of what they thought of his character in the ring. Well, he was Canada's greatest athlete. You just had to ask him. Well, that's, that's what I grew up believing. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, I, I think yes. maybe, uh, you know, people like Kenny Omega can maybe make a case for the present day. But, yeah, Kaniski was something else and just loved across Canada. Right. As you were doing your your research, uh, I know you you started, boy, you started right at the beginning. You were talking about his early roots, and you get into uh, uh, him learning the ropes and things like that. As you dug into this, Stephen, was there ever a time when you thought, boy, maybe I bit off more than I can chew, or was it one of those things where the more you researched it, the, the hungrier you got? I really enjoyed it. I mean, usually when you set out to write a book, you know, it's it's a lot of work. I did not really have that feeling this time. I, I enjoyed, uh, you know, turning over those rocks, finding the next little bit, and I easily yeah. would have written, you know, twice as much as I did. You know, there are publishers' considerations to have in mind, but no, it it was a pleasure. I found more and more, you know, it, it, it was just amazing to me what, uh, what a life this man lived. And, uh, you know, as far as his early years are concerned, yeah, as you say, I did want to get into some of that background, you know, specifically the um, experience of uh, immigrant communities in central Alberta, you know, because I, I really think that story is key in really illustrating why Gene Kaniski was what he was. I mean, he came from an amazing family, lived through amazing times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that really toughened him up. Uh, you know, he was not the sort of fellow who always dreamed of being a wrestler. I mean, he lived through the Depression. Uh, he saw wrestling eventually as his ticket to a much better life, the chance to travel, you know, the chance to influence people in a good way. He took full advantage of that. But, you know, everything I uncovered was, was just uh, amazing to me, and I, I enjoyed putting the pieces together very much. Well, and I think as you did your research, and it comes through in your book, too, is that you, you saw a man of good character, you saw a family man, you saw somebody who, as you alluded to at the onset here, that was a good business person, and, you know, he understood the business. Um, I think that has to be rewarding when you read about these things. I know for me, when I look at all of the, just the hundreds of wrestlers, there, there are some that you can look back on and say, boy, you know, this guy just, he wasn't what he showed us uh, in the ring. He wasn't a man of good character, but there are so many that when you find out they were good people, that is rewarding. 
And I, as I read your book, I learned a ton of things. I'll be honest with you that I did not uh, know about Gene and I, I don't claim to know everything about him, but your book was excellently researched and I give you an A for A plus for, you know, obviously the hard work and hours that you put into this. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I really enjoyed getting in touch with people who knew Gene Kaniski, you know, all through his life, going back to the Depression. Um, and I was amazed at the impact he had on people in his later life. We think, okay, he's retired, you know, he's taking it easy. Uh, but not so. I mean, he was just um, kind of a socialite, you could say. He loved to live his private life, but... You know, he'd be out in the bars helping friends. He'd be uh, convincing young people to stay in school. I mean, he was a man about the town. And uh, in Blaine, Washington, where he lived, in fact, about half his life, I mean, people speak very, very fondly of him to this day. And, uh, you know, I go there, and it's like a Kaniski reunion tour talking to these people. It's just amazing what an impact he had right to the very end of his life. Yeah, and that's very rewarding when you have that opportunity. Now, I know you also had the chance to talk with uh, both his sons, Kelly and Nick. And what was that like as they, they remembered their dad and shared stories and things with you? Well, I, I think they enjoyed the process along with me. First, I've got to say that they were just absolutely supportive from the day I you know, told them what I was interested in doing. Um, you know, I, I did spend hours talking over every aspect of their father's life, his wrestling career, you know, the family situation. Uh, they held nothing back. Um, and I, I think they enjoyed, uh, you know, enjoyed focusing on the good times they had with their dad and their mother. Um, and even going back to the early days, um, you know, other Kaniski relatives, uh, I, I think they enjoyed being part of the process and, uh, they were a big part of it for sure. Well, you know, and we should tell our listeners that uh, you mentioned uh, Kelly and Nick's mother. Um, you know, Gene spent a good portion of his life raising the boys without her. And that had to be difficult as he was a wrestler and on the road and trying to keep the family together. And I think that's another great sign of his character. Yeah, I mean, it is a tragic story, uh, as you know. The the marriage did. I wanted last. you to allude to that. Yes. Yes, and um, you know, Gene, like a lot of wrestlers of his day, had shall we say opportunities on the road. Uh, his sons yep. certainly make no secret of the fact that he was not the most faithful husband in the world. You know, there right. were, there were marital problems, and, and the marriage broke up in the 1970s, in 1973. Actually, very shortly after the Kaniskis moved to the, the first real, you know, big, beautiful house the family ever had. Um, mm -hmm. Marion Kaniski, Jean's wife, um, left the family and, and very sadly, uh, a few years later, committed suicide. Uh, Jean, I think, did regret certain decisions that had led to that unfortunate situation, but... Um, you know, he did the best he could after that. As you say, he raised his sons. Uh, he gave up a lot to do that. Uh, he put them mm -hmm. first. He, he would be cooking for them. Uh, you know, he wanted to make sure they would not uh, go off on the wrong track. And uh, I, I think he would be very proud of his sons now. He did become proud of his sons. Um, 
not that he was not at any point, but he, he became very close to his sons, um, you know, after some difficult times. But, um, you know, before Gene passed away, I, I think he would probably say he was more proud of his sons than anything else. And, uh, you know, I can see why. I mean, they are, they're two men of, of very good character, and uh, he would have a right to be proud of them. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is because of uh, the effort that Gene made. I mean, he gave them every bit of attention he could, tried to direct them. You know, he was tough in his way. He was a disciplinarian, but he never laid a finger on them. Uh, he was a guy who would actually kiss his sons, some of their friends. Um, just not at all the kind of fellow I thought I was watching on TV decades ago. He put his sons first, and I think you can see the effect of that to this day in those two men. Right. Well, and you know, when you when you mentioned about being kind of a, well, kissing his sons or his friends and, you know, being just a friendly type person, that was not the Gene Kaniski that uh, I, of course, remember as a wrestler, because uh, anytime I ever saw Gene, he played the heel role. And the thing I always liked about Gene was that he wasn't, you know, in, in the era of kayfabe, we had, man, we had mad dogs and bulldogs and, and you know, hated Russians and Germans and, and stomping, goose-stepping, you know, Russia or Germans and, and the Japanese wrestlers. And Gene was, was not that type of a heel. He was, uh, at least I remember him when he was in the AWA territory in the early 60s and I first saw him. He wasn't the type of a wrestler that came out on his interview and and screamed and yelled a lot. He was he was more soft spoken, but matter of fact to the point. And when he went into the ring, you actually saw him wrestling. I remember thinking, you know, he's not not doing what some of these other bad guys are doing. And he was um, he was more of a, a a wrestler heel. And I remember seeing him in 1962 when he wrestled Vern Gagne. And for anybody that knows Vern Gagne, he was wrestling first, personality or character second with any any wrestler that he had working with him in his territory and who he enjoyed working with. Vern wanted a wrestler first. And I remember the matches between Gene and Vern. One of them was a cage match out at uh, Metropolitan Stadium, which was our old Minnesota Twins baseball stadium back in that era. And Gene wrestled, and he was aggressive. He was he was very much on the attack. But him and Vern, they worked well together. And Vern later said that, well, Vern always said his toughest opponent. If he just asked him, and most wrestlers got this question, but Vern always said his toughest opponent was Han Schmidt, and that always seemed to be his standard answer. But one time we were talking, and it was. Gene Kaniski was a guy I enjoyed working with, and I wished I would have had him in our territory longer than we did. And, you know, so he respected Gene. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, Kaniski took his work seriously. There's no doubt about that. You know, you can say the same thing about Hans Schmidt, Vern Gagne. You know, they fed off each other well. I mean, they they worked well together, but certainly there was a mutual respect and uh, you know, I know Kaniski always valued Vern Gagne's friendship. They remained close for many years afterward. Um, but when you talk about wrestlers of that caliber, my goodness, yeah, it's amazing that, you know, over half a century later, uh, we have the memories we do 
But, uh, yeah, Kaniski was one who took his craft extremely seriously and thought he had a duty, you know, to give the fans their money's worth and more. Well, you know, it's hard to believe, too. I mean, a guy like Kaniski, we all know that he became the NWA world champion. And just to get to that level and have the uh, alliance vote you as the guy they want to carry the banner for the next, in that time period, the NWA usually would look to have their guy hold the title for a good two to three, maybe four years. That was what they expected. And Gene was the man they gave the torch to. Ironically, uh, this month, February, it's 50 years since Gene dropped the title to Dory Funk Jr. in Tampa, or uh, Miami, Florida. And it Tampa. Tampa, it was Tampa. Yeah, it was Tampa. And, uh, you know, it's, that's hard for me to believe because it seems like just yesterday when I was picking up wrestling magazines and reading that Dory Jr. had beat Gene. But I, I do remember, and I want to let you confirm or deny this, um, I do remember at the time that Gene had said that he wanted to, to kind of slow down, get out of the, the daily rough routine of the NWA title, and he was excited that it was going to be Dory Jr. that uh, would be the guy to take the throne. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. You know, during most of Kaniski's NWA title reign, <clears throat> Uh, he and his family were based in the St. Louis area, but it was mm-hmm. in 1968 that uh, Kaniski bought into the promotion in Vancouver. The whole family moved to the West Coast, and even from that point, he was really thinking, you know, um, I'm looking ahead, you know, I'm, I'm defending the title now, but uh, I really want to make this transition. So. It was at the NWA convention in 1968, absolutely, that Gene, in his own way, you know, um, made it known that he would be willing to give up the title very shortly. And, you know, as always, there's a lot of debating that goes on with regard to who's next. But uh, Kennedy was very much in favor of Dory Funk Jr. I mean, they were good friends going back many years. I mean, Dory Funk Sr. Well, Dory Sr. and Gene were good friends. Oh, absolutely. And and that yeah. friendship carried over to the next generation. So Gene was absolutely in favor of Dory Jr. Uh, taking over. Uh, took a while to make that transition, but I believe it was February 9th, as you say, 1969 in Tampa, that... Uh, in a one-fall match, which was a little bit unusual in those uh, defenses at that time, uh, Funk mm-hmm. and uh, kicked off a great reign of his own. But, yeah, Gene was ready to step down, and, uh, and I think that's the guy he wanted to lose the belt to. Well, and I, and I think when you say that he was ready to drop it, I think that was the case for most of the NWA champions, as I said a minute ago, that... You know, that the normal title reign, it, it was usually around at least two years, maybe three years. And doing that yearly grind where they were wrestling 300 or more dates a year and going all over the country and even foreign countries, um, it, it certainly is understandable how that can wear on you. And the NWA title, and this is what made Gene good, like it did Harley Race and Dory Jr. and Briscoe and Harley Ra- or uh, uh, Ric Flair as well, if you want to include him. They, they had to go in, Pat O'Connor was another one, they had to go into all of these different 
cities and wrestle against either the top heel or the top baby face. And it was really a different guy every single night of the week, all year long. And Gene was obviously very good at that. He was, yeah. It was just a completely different time. I mean, I get a little bit tired of seeing the same match over and over and over these days. But uh, as you say, oh, the yeah. champions were on the go constantly. And, and, and some of the challengers were maybe good local fellows, but um, you know, not really up to the level of an NWA champion. Kaniski made a lot of them look uh, absolutely great and on the verge of, of being that champion. Uh, he took his work mm-hmm. seriously. I, I, I don't know exactly how many 60-minute matches he had over the course of his reign, but it was a pretty amazing number uh, with opponents of all sorts. Uh, yeah, it was just an amazing three years. Well, and it's generally uh, understood that the, the role of the champion, I mean, whether it be the NWA or any of the other alliances of the era, but especially the NWA champion, his goal, his job was to go into all of these different cities, take on the top challenger, and always leave that ring with the fans believing that the top challenger that he was against should have won the title. And that was what the role of the champion was. And that's what made Gene and Harley and all these other guys we mentioned a moment ago so good because they could do that night in and night out and set up a rematch or that sort of thing too. But always make the challenger look like they were great, maybe greater than they actually were. Right. And in some of the, the major territories, you know, they would do the same thing with, you know, maybe four or five different contenders. So, yeah, it's, it is just amazing. I mean, you can imagine how these guys would feel after two or three years. But, uh, you know, mm-hmm. he did his part. And, and you know, you, you mentioned the NWA territories. And I, I do bring up Japan in the book, and particularly uh, Kaniski's um, matches in 1967 against Giant Baba, which were not over the NWA title. But, you know, the well, Baba brought in Kaniski essentially, uh, to sort of establish parity between himself as a regional champion and Kaniski as an NWA champion. So they would generally sure. fight to draws. Uh, Kaniski would not defend the title, but he would elevate Baba. I mean, it just it, it, it is amazing what he did and, and how seriously he took his job. He didn't have to have these 60-minute matches to you know, establish that a contender was pretty darn good, but... Uh, you know, he went above and beyond just about night after night. The other thing that was always interesting, too, about the NWA champion, and especially Gene, was that when you walked away from that match, and as we said, the challenger was literally looked upon as the, the one that was uh, should have won or got jobbed out of the title because something the champion did or didn't do, and when Gene went back into that city another time, it always drew more money, and that objective was there too. I mean, we want you to draw money. And Gene, as champion, was a good draw. He, he wrestled against so much talent too, because obviously Dory Jr., but against Pat O'Connor, against Wilbur Snyder, against Dick the Bruiser, against Whipper Billy Watson. And I mean, we can go... Dick Hutton, you name matches or people that he wrestled, and he had the cream of the crop every single night of the week. Yep. 
um, you know, I, I actually never saw him as NWA champion when I was growing up. It was not until, oh, you know, his early days of um, being an owner in Vancouver that I really became familiar with Kaniski. Uh-huh. But, you know, as, as I look back at the earlier years of his career, not only his NWA title reign, I mean, he took pride in meeting the best, uh, whether in St. Louis, wherever he was, in Buffalo, uh, down in Texas. I mean, he... Uh, you know, I, I can just imagine how much he put into every match. But as NWA champion, he certainly was, was well-tested. He was up to the task uh, that was put before him. He took it seriously. As you say, he faced the best of the best for three solid years. And uh, uh, it's just an amazing time to look back on. Were you ever able, when you were talking with Nick and Kelly, were you ever able to find out what the rationale was when uh, Gene wrestled in the late 50s in Texas and he wrestled as Gene Kelly? And I know you do allude to that in your book, but why don't you share with us a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, um, I, I believe it was Kelly who told me that, um, yeah, I, I think Kelly told me that uh, it, it was a matter of, um, you know, the promotion in Texas, just thinking that people would not relate so much to somebody with that Polish name. So, you know, they gave him an Irish okay, name yeah, instead. Yeah. Um, you know, Gene himself, uh, at least publicly, said that, you know, he was under suspension, I think, in California as Gene Kaniski. So he had to use another name. I don't think there was anything to that. Um, but, yeah, I think it was simply a matter of... Um, the promotion thinking, well, you know, people relate, will relate to Kelly Moore. But interestingly, by that time, Kaniski was a well-known name uh, in much of Texas. So uh, I, I'm not sure there was any need to change the name. But, yeah, it, it is a little bit odd. I mean, that was around the time that the actor Gene Kelly was was very popular. Uh, but oh, yeah, very true. In much of Texas, yeah, uh, that's the Gene Kelly story. I think it was just a matter of the promoter thinking people would would relate better to Kelly. One of the things that I remember when he was using that Gene Kelly name is that he was teamed up at off and on with Len Crosby, who, you know, was later Lenny Montana, and they were teamed in Texas under those names. And then when we saw them in the AWA in the early 60s, uh, Gene and and Len Montana were teamed up, and Gene was with Hard-Boiled Haggerty, who, that was another guy I should mention to you. Uh, back before he passed away, I had talked with uh, Hard-Boiled Haggerty a couple of times out in Las Vegas, and he had nothing but great things to say about Gene, and they were our AWA tag team champions for a while after uh, Lenny Montana left the AWA with a broken leg and HB the storyline was HB picked Gene to be his replacement and they held the title for a while. Yeah, I I know they were a great team. You know, they, they had another run in Canada a few years after that. Yes, they did. Um, Yeah. You know, it, it, they were just, uh, again, two larger than life guys. Um, You know, they, they, uh, didn't always get along uh, in the storyline, but um, well, that's how they broke up in the AWA. They had a falling out, mm-hmm. and when they were champion, and uh, they the promo 
the promotion came up with kind of a unique way to determine who the new tag team champions were going to be because Gene and, and HB had had their falling out. So they pitted, they pitted them together in a match with the winner of the match able to choose a partner and retain the tag team title. And Gene was on his way out, so HB won, and he picked uh, Texas Bob Geigel as his replacement. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Gene and HB were again tag team, uh, a tag team in Vancouver about a year later. So it was kind of interesting because I remember when I first heard that story or read that story back in, it was in the 60s, I thought, well, that's weird. They hated each other here. You know, what, what is the deal? Now they're buddies again, you know. But we didn't always know those things, you know, in the kayfabe era, and they could pull those things off real easily. Yet yeah, news traveled a lot more slowly then. Um, but oh, it, it didn't it, travel at all sometimes. <laughs> I, I was amazed just to see the quality of, of tag teams Kaniski was a part of as well. I mean, I, I saw him as a tag team wrestler many times when he was based in Vancouver, but just to, to look through his career as a tag team wrestler alone is pretty amazing. I mean, going back to his early days in California with John Tolis, uh, they were both young fellows, mm-hmm. young Canadians, um, and they were hungry. They did very well, and then uh, Kaniski hooked up with Lord Blairs in Southern California. Uh, they formed oh, yeah. an amazing team. Um, and then when I'm Kaniski, looking at a picture of them right now. Hmm. And then when Kaniski came back north and was based in Toronto, Buffalo, he had a couple of amazing partners in Fritz von Erich and, and Don Leo Jonathan. Um, mm-hmm. I think his team with Waldo von Erich uh, in the WWWF uh, was one to remember. Of course, his pairing with Haggerty. Um, and, you know, there were some later combinations that were pretty interesting. I remember watching Kaniski and, uh, and Ivan Koloff uh, in the early 70s. Uh, you know, they're one of those memorable teams in my mind. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if you just took Kaniski as a tag team wrestler and, and the, the people he worked with and the quality of teams they formed, uh, you know, that is pretty amazing and, and often overlooked when it comes to the career of Gene Kaniski. Well, I can tell you when you mentioned about tag teams for Gene Kaniski, I saw him wrestle a uh, team up with uh, Bill Miller. I saw him team up with Harley Race. I saw him team up with Dutch Savage. Uh, he he had quite quite the array of partners, and uh, very good wrestler, absolutely. Yeah, he he was adaptable. I mean, he didn't have a fancy style, but he was solid in just about every way. He took his work seriously. Uh, and I think that rubbed off on a lot of partners, though the people I think we're talking about didn't need a lot of influencing. I mean, they were great in their own right, too. But yeah, Kaniski as a tag team wrestler is something I really came to appreciate. One of the things, too, that Gene has is a distinction that not anyone else can claim. He held the AWA world title. He held the NWA world title. And he was the World Wrestling Alliance, the Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder's Indianapolis Group's world title. And really an interesting thing was is that when he was in the AWA, second to the AWA title in the very early 60s was the United States Championship, which was a title that had lineage back to the 50s. And guys like Wilbur Snyder, 
Dick the Bruiser, Hans Schmidt, Vern Gagne, they held this title. And Gene Kaniski held it in the early 60s. When he won the AWA title, he had the distinction of having the United States title and he was half of the tag champions and no one else has ever had that. So his honors, you know, as far as titles go, is very impressive. The only one he never achieved was the WWWF title, but he had some classic battles with Bruno San Martino uh, for that belt. Yeah, he did, uh, and you know that is something he easily could have won. When I talked to Bruno uh, a couple of years ago, uh, you know he praised Kaniski. You know, certainly characterized him as a top opponent. Um, and you know, had Kaniski decided to stay in the East longer, well, it, it might have happened. But um, you know, he was traveling around so much, uh, winning titles everywhere else. It seemed, and he, he did hold a tag team title with Waldo von Erich in the WWWF. But yes, he did. Um, yeah, you know, it just it, it it was not to be. You know, he just felt he was not being pushed to the degree he should have. Um, you know, he he was not particularly happy with, um, you know, just the way he was treated by Vince McMahon Sr. It, it wasn't a personal thing. He just thought that uh, McMahon was missing the boat a little bit with him. Other promoters seemed to understand what Kaniski had to offer a little better. So he, you know, went in the other direction and, uh, well, you know, immediately pretty much after leaving uh, the East Coast, as you say, he went to Indianapolis. He, he won the title there. Uh, it wasn't long after that he became NWA champion, so he made a great move. But, yeah, it would have been interesting had he uh, opted to stay in uh, the New York area a little bit longer. He might have, uh, you know, pulled off another major title. Well, and you, you point out, too, the, the ability or the, the luxury that the wrestlers had of that era, that if you didn't feel that you were being treated uh, exactly right, or you didn't like your paydays, or you didn't like the promoter, or whatever whatever was the problem, uh, you could go to another territory and still make it big in the business. And, you know, just the fact that he was in the W, it was WWWF in those days, and he made the right decision, and he did. He went to Indianapolis, had that run as the WWA champion. He uh, He also, but, you know, everywhere he went, I mean, he was out in California, in the Pacific Northwest, Texas, Florida, and you name it, uh, he definitely was always on top. Transition us a little bit to when he got to 1967, as you talked about a little bit ago, and bought into the, or was it 68? You said he bought into the Vancouver promotion. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, interesting. I mean, he had, you could say, a second home, more or less, in the Pacific Northwest, not necessarily a structure, but he was back and forth. I mean, he made his debut in Vancouver back uh, around 1957. He was in and out, you know, all through his stay in the Midwest and uh, on the East Coast. Uh, so, you know, while he was based in uh, the Northwest, he did have a hand in assisting uh, the promoter Rod Fenton, who in fact was another Albertan, you know, the promoter who got Kaniski started uh, in Arizona as a wrestler. Mm -hmm. So Kaniski was 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 a behind the scenes kind of guy. He was doing some 
it appears, doing some booking and certainly doing some helping out uh, in the office. So he, you know, was very much attached to that promotion, even when he was in St. Louis and elsewhere. But um, Rod Fenton himself, I would say he got burned out. I think the, the pivotal factor is that his wife um, had a terminal illness. She wanted to return to the United States. Um, so Fenton, you know, wanted to sell the promotion. Um, and, you know, he sold um, to Sandor Koufax, to Gene Kaniski, and to Don Owen. So there was an opportunity. Kaniski took advantage. He wanted to raise his family in one place. He did love the Northwest. So, you know, there were a lot of factors at play that, uh, you know, led to his, uh, you know, making that move. And, uh, uh, you know, he had a pretty hard time the first year defending the NWA title while trying to help run a promotion in Vancouver. But uh, he managed to do that. And uh, just yeah, that's where he wanted to be. And, and that seemed to be the time. And you know, a lot of things came together. But it really had to do with the uh, the opportunity that opened up when Rod Fenton made the, the decision to leave and to sell the promotion. Uh, the the Kinniskis, yeah. you know, were very familiar with the West Coast already, but uh, that was a permanent move, and, uh, you know, from that time, Gene Kinniski was, you could say, Mr. Vancouver. To our listeners, we are talking with uh, Stephen Verrier. Gene Kinniski, Canadian wrestling legend, outstanding book and as i'm going to give uh, glenn a chance to come out from under the ring he tends to disappear under there i want you to uh, give us a give us a little bit of where they can pick up your book Stephen, and then we'll bring glenn in for a little bit here and see what he can uh, get from you yeah well the easiest option is just to go to amazon it's gene kaniski canadian wrestling legend it's uh, with a red cover or uh, the publisher is McFarland Books. That's with a D at the end, McFarland. Um, again, Gene mm-hmm. Kaniski, Canadian wrestling legend. It's available uh, in a number of places, but those are the easiest to go to. Okay. With that, let's get Glenn out from under there. And Glenn, uh, what do you think so far? We've I, got a main event here with Stephen Verrier. Absolutely. I've been here absorbing like a sponge all of the great talk and just yeah, learning more uh, about this uh, wonderful talent. And, you know, when you, you, you think about Gene Kaniski, another aspect of Gene's life and career you got to really think about, too, is his football. If it weren't really for the football part of it, uh, there was a lot of serious networking going on, as is the case uh, when you talk about pro wrestling's uh, connection with football, whether it be on the collegiate or the professional level. Uh, it was through these uh, sort of things that kind of got him into the business. Let's talk a little bit about Gene Kaniski before he got into the pro wrestling business and uh, uh, him playing football and, and some of the people that he ended up meeting and how that really did set the stage for uh, that uh, for the for pro wrestling becoming his career uh, when the football thing didn't pan out. Yeah, well, Kaniski was 20 years old when he made the transition to pro football. As a, as a teenager, he was doing a lot of amateur wrestling. He did win provincial titles. Uh, but he also played junior amateur football. And uh, he was offered a chance to join the Edmonton Eskimos in 1949. As I say, when he was 20, he took that opportunity. He played linebacker. Uh, that was not a CFL team yet. The league was not in existence at that time, but it was a, you know, a professional football league based in uh, 
in Western Canada. Um, so he was a hometown guy playing for his hometown professional football team. Um, he played one season first of all in 1949. He did well uh, on the heels of that. He and, uh, in fact, one of his teammates and close friends got uh, a scholarship to go play at the University of Arizona. Uh, Gene took advantage. He played a couple of years of collegiate football. And interestingly, uh, he probably would have been an NFLer had he not dropped out of college. Uh, he would have had to wait a couple of years uh, to be eligible. You know, he had enough of college after a couple of years. He wanted to get out and make a living. Uh, he had an NFL offer uh, from the Los Angeles Rams, a legitimate offer. And they were hoping something could be worked out with the league that would give Gene the chance to play professionally, even though uh, his class was not graduating yet. That didn't work out, so he decided to go back to the Edmonton Eskimos. He did do some pro wrestling in Arizona prior to uh, making his return to Edmonton, but in uh, 1952, he was an Edmonton Eskimo once again, making about a handsome six to $8,000 a year. Uh, he blew out his knee terribly in the first game of that season. Uh, he rehabbed like you wouldn't believe. I, I talked to... Well, many times to one of his great friends from that era who just described how Gene would just, you know, tough it out and do everything possible uh, to get back in football shape. And amazingly, after missing a whole season, he did put in a year with the Eskimos again in 1953. He played very well, but by the time that was over, he decided wrestling would be easier on that knee. And, uh, you know, he did go on to be a wrestler, but as you kind of mentioned, Glenn, uh, he did do some networking. Uh, a couple of his network or a couple of his friends on the Eskimos were Wilbur Snyder and uh, Joe Blanchard, uh, both very good wrestlers uh, who went on to great success. Um, also during his time in Edmonton, you know, Kaniski was well acquainted with uh, the local promoter of wrestling, Al Oming, with Stu Hart down in Calgary. Um, there was a lot of networking going on. I mean, Kaniski did not have visions of being a professional wrestler when he was a very young person. Uh, he wanted a better life. Um, he wanted, I think, a family that could be raised, you know, with certain advantages. But you know, he did not uh, really have wrestling, I think, on his uh, radar yet. And uh, he went through that football career first and, and, and finally for practical reasons just made that decision to be a wrestler, but uh, he accomplished an awful lot in sports before making that decision. And it made it all the more easier to, uh, with some of the, I guess the lucrative business of what pro wrestling was, uh, compared to, to, the, to football on a professional level, because it wasn't in the era of the big contracts. I mean, you had the case not only in American football, but in, up, in, up in Canada as well, where a lot of these guys would end up having to find uh, work in the off-season to kind of uh, put a get a bump in and keep keep the food on the table, so it, it was a little bit of a different game uh, when you get into pro wrestling, just because of that. Once you get in, you have such a, an outlet for steady employment and other opportunities throughout the territories, and that opportunity to put like uh, make a living, put that put that food on the table. Yeah, absolutely. As far as Kaniski is concerned, while he was playing football, it appears he, you know, did some work in power generation in Alberta. And, uh, you know, he was not happy with the money he was making as a football player. 
wrestling gave him a lot more opportunities. You know, he was willing to travel. Uh, he was in demand, and yeah, he made a substantial pay raise just by by leaving football to be a wrestler. Mm-hmm. You mentioned H. Uh, B. Haggerty, Hardball Haggerty, who was a partner with uh, you know, wrestled with Gene in the early days uh, in the AWA. Uh, uh, he uh, Hardboiled Haggerty was involved. Of course, he, he was uh, had many different roles uh, in his acting career. Uh, Gene did a little bit of dabbling into the acting world as well. Could you talk a little bit about what Gene did outside of pro wrestling in regards to acting? Because I do believe uh, he was in. Uh, was he in the in the Stallone movie uh, that he did about wrestling, Paradise Alley? Well, it's interesting. He's in the credits, but uh, you know, this is a story that Kelly told me. Uh, Kelly was attending West Texas State University. Uh, he heard that Stallone was doing a movie about wrestling, Paradise Alley. Kelly was interested. So, uh, in fact, uh, it was Kelly who participated in that movie. Um, you know, his football coaches at West Texas said, no, you can't do anything like that. So what did Kelly do? He used his dad's name, his dad's social security number. And uh, Kelly says his bit on camera was, was you know, not all that uh, noticeable, shall we say, and uh, he got away with it. But, you know, people associate Gene Kaniski often with that Stallone movie, but it, in fact, was Kelly who was in that movie. But uh, Gene did uh, act in a couple of Canadian movies. Uh, there's one in which he plays a, oh, a, a tough cop and, um, you know, delivers some funny lines. He enjoyed doing that movie. Um, he did another Canadian movie, a very small part, but, you know, he was a, a pretty active presence for a time on television, you know, out of Toronto on talk shows, on uh, sports discussion shows and so on. Um, so he did, uh, you know, he was comfortable in front of cameras and uh, Canadians especially did get to see him quite a bit. But as far as the Stallone movie is concerned, no, that was Kelly Kaniski. Wow, I I that I grew up uh, very close to Manitoba, and I was able to pick up a lot of Winnipeg Television, and they would have wrestling on. And uh, one of the things I got a chance to watch uh, over the course of a couple of weeks w- over this taping that was done in 1992 was I got the chance to see Gene Kaniski kind of in his last big, big uh, I guess pro wrestling appearances in ring as a competitor working for Tony Candelo's West Four Wrestling Alliance, and this was back in '92, so he was still going. And strong, uh, even towards the end here. Yeah, that came out of the blue. I, I did talk to Tony about that. Um, you know, he called Gene, said, "You want to come out and do some refereeing?" Gene said, "Okay," but you know, wouldn't you know it? When Gene was out in Winnipeg, um, the plan changed. Uh, Gene agreed to get in the ring for a few matches, and uh, you know, at age sixty-three, he was still, you know, still going at it and looking pretty good for. For a veteran, shall we say, um, but that that came out of nowhere. But uh, you know, that is one of those memorable stories. You know, one of those many things you would not expect to come across in the life of Gene Kaniski. Yeah, and the thing too is uh, when you watch this stuff. Uh, I mean, he was uh, working with some guys that uh, you know, even w- one of them still today has made such an, making a, a big impact on the pro wrestling scene. I, it was really fun to see, you know, and going back and revisit these uh, clips to see a young Chris Jericho and Lance Storm, these young high flying guys in this six man match. I can remember with big old Gene Kaniski kind of uh, playing the fatherly role. Yeah, it it is something to see, and you know that uh, those matches are still viewable on YouTube and and worth having a look at. 
um, you know, if only for history's sake. Uh, yeah, that's quite a, a meeting of the generation. In 2000, Gene uh, ended up in all places in Japan, working for All Japan Pro Wrestling. Could you talk about what his role was and the th- some of the things that he did while overseas in Japan uh, with, all, with All Japan Wrestling? All Japan is one of those promotions that really values the veterans. I mean, Kaniski was remembered for helping put Baba really, you know, front and center as a serious wrestler, at least in the minds of the people who grew up watching him. So, you know, guys like Abdullah the Butcher, you know, the Funks, Kaniski, Mil Mascaras, Freddie Blassie, a lot of others, uh, it would be brought back from time to time or mentioned, you know, as, as really pivotal parts of the history of the promotion or of Japanese wrestling in general. There was a great appreciation for people like that. So Kaniski was invited back uh, first a number of times just to, you know, stand in the ring, be a presence, wave to the fans and, you know, give them a feel-good moment, you know, to remember what he contributed. But then a little bit later on, uh, as you say, around 2000, uh, he had the chance to be the storyline commissioner. And that's all it was. I mean, Lord Blair's had played that role for a time. They needed a fill-in. Kaniski was was happy to do it. Loved to go to Japan. Got paid well for it. So he was just kind of playing the commissioner, you know, the guy who would maybe, you know, hand the belt over, stand in the ring, maybe make an announcement. It was nothing much more than that. But uh, it certainly, I think, highlighted how important Baba and others uh, believed he was. I mean, Baba passed away in 1999, but, um, you know, even for a little bit after that, Kaniski was, was brought in um, along with San Martino and others, just respected, appreciated. And, uh, you know, Kaniski was there mainly as a presence and a, and a link to that very uh, impressive past that the promotion had. I'm going to uh, throw the mic over here uh, back to George Shire. Uh, George, do you have uh, anything uh, else left to uh, ask uh, this week uh, of Stephen Verrier uh, here on Wrestling Memories that it now? Well, I, I just I want to say thank you deeply for coming on to the to our show, Stephen. And Glenn knows, and our listeners know that of all of the many many authors that we've had on our Wrestling Memories show, one of the things that's important to me is that I have seen so many books come down the pike over the past, say, twenty years, and there are dozens of wrestler books. Some of them are spectacular. Some of them are very good. Some are okay. And some, you know, I've, I've passed on a few. And Glenn knows I won't have anybody on that I don't feel that the book hasn't been researched and is accurate and it is sincere and it gives us a look inside the wrestler and the, the, the background. And your book is a main event, as I alluded to at the onset of our program. And I encourage everyone to definitely, if you're an old school fan, if you like the kayfabe era, if you grew up during the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you really, really are going to do yourself a favor by adding uh, Stephen Verrier's book, Gene Kaniski, Canadian Wrestling Legend, to your personal library. And you're going to learn, I mean, you've just touched the iceberg here, the tip of the iceberg with what you've said tonight. But again, Stephen, thank you, and tell us once again where folks can get your book, and then I wish you just the ultimate success with it, because it is a winner. 
Well, thank you, George. Yeah, the, the book is available uh, via Amazon.com or Amazon.ca if you happen to be in Canada, uh, or McFarland uh, Books. Um, and, you know, most of the online booksellers can be ordered through many bookstores and is, you know, on the shelves in some. But, um, you know, the, the easiest thing is just to go to Amazon and, and type in Gene Kaniski, Canadian Wrestling Legend. And, uh, again, I, I, I appreciate the words, George, and, uh, you know, I appreciate also having had the chance to talk to you while I was working on the book. It, it was a great help. Well, and I appreciated the fact that you had uh, talked with me about it. I know we cleared up some things that uh, you had questions on, and I'm always very happy to do that with authors because, uh, again, Glenn knows and people know who know me that uh, if it's not accurate, it's not not to be printed in my ideas. So um, do you have any book signings or anything that are coming up that you want to share, or, or is uh, that not happening right at the moment? Yeah, I, I do, but... Um... You know, for the moment, I'm, I'm focusing more on the Northwest. I mean, what I'm looking forward to probably as much as anything is uh, doing something at uh, Nick Kaniski's Bar, Kaniski's Reef in, in Point Roberts, Washington. Oh, great. Yeah, and, and also great. in Blaine, Washington, I'm, I'm getting something together. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's one thing. I, I, I've done the bookstore thing before, and I'm less inclined to do that because as far as a book like this is concerned, we're talking about... You know, I, I want to talk to people who knew Gene Kaniski, not just people who know books, but right. people who knew Kaniski. So, you know, I, I, I may get out to some wrestling shows, but I'm really looking forward to getting to the Cauliflower Alley Club in, uh, in spring of this year. If any listeners are planning to be there, please come and visit my table in the nostalgia room. Um, and uh, I would love to talk over Gene Kaniski with you. But, uh, yeah, I, I am doing some things. I'm doing other interviews, you know. But um, I, I'm really looking forward to getting Las Vegas to uh, Cauliflower Alley Club. That's incredible. Great. Well, it has been an honor to have you on, and I do wish you success with the book. Definitely, I hope you sell hundreds of copies. And good luck in CAC. And thank you so much for uh, coming on with us and sharing some Gene stories. That's been awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that. I've I've had a little bit of a hard time with my voice, but uh, you know, we made it through the hour. I had to stifle a thing or two, but uh, glad we made it. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to both of you gentlemen. Oh, it's been very good, good times. Yes, indeed. For Stephen Verrier and George Shire, I'm Glenn Broggett. This has been Rasslin' Memories Then and Now.